Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Good morning, Lisa. Welcome to episode 73. Well, this is a great topic for us today because our topic is launching older kids. And you and I have both done that, and we both have more kids to launch. So it's a great topic. And what makes this interview even better is that you went into our Facebook group and you asked our people what they would want you to ask our guest. That's a lot of asks, but you know what I'm saying. So um, we crowdsourced this to find out exactly what people wanted to know. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a hot topic because there aren't as many supports and resources out there for those of us who are parenting these older kids. And we hear from a lot of you that you're kind of wrestling through the teen years. So I had the privilege of chatting with Dr. Chris Kittle, and she lives in the Dallas-Fort Worth area with their two daughters, one who was adopted as an infant from China and one who was adopted as a teenager from China. And she has her PhD and teaches leadership communication at a local Christian university. She has also served as a court-appointed special advocate, or CASA. And she is also the co-author of Wisdom from Adoptive Families, Joys and Challenges in Older Child Adoption. And this book has been out for a couple years. Our family had the opportunity to participate in some of that research. I have a copy. It's fantastic. So I'm excited for you guys to hear my conversation with Chris. Chris, welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. Thank you. I'm excited about being here today. So I invited you to come on because you have lived in the world of older child adoption. You even have a book about that. We're going to get to that like all the way at the end, but could you just start and kind of tell us how your family came to adoption and kind of what that has looked like from the older child side? Because both of us have walked through an older child adoption and then also kind of launched or semi-launched adult kids. Yeah. Yeah. So we started off by adopting an infant from China. And then when she was three, felt like we didn't want her to be an only child. So we, and she wasn't sleeping through the night. We couldn't do infant again. And so we decided to adopt the child that was aging out. So we went outside of birth order. We did all the things they tell you, you really shouldn't do, but it worked for our family. It doesn't work for my family, but it did, it did. And it has worked for our family. Um, and so then we went back to China and adopted a girl who was 13 and a half. And she is now 22. And um, like you said, she has last year, she moved out and was renting a room from somebody. So she kind of moved out, but kind of didn't. Um, But then just three months ago, she moved into her very own apartment and is living by herself in her very own apartment. Well, how does that feel for you? <laughs> yeah. uh, she is doing very well and it's very exciting, very exciting for her to feel that success. Yeah. And, and we'll probably get maybe into some more of those details, but has it been a smooth ride from 13 and a half to 22? <laughs> um, no, no, it has not. Um, it's probably more smooth now than it has ever been. Um, But, and this, we found this in our study and in our book as well, year two to four is really the hardest. And that consistently seems to be the case of people that we talk to. 
yeah, it's so interesting. So we're going to take our experiences and we have gathered questions from our Facebook community around this topic of parenting older kids who have come to us through adoption. Some of these questions have to do or will apply to kids who we brought into our homes as older kids like you did and we did, you know, as teenagers. But a lot of them apply to our kids who came to us as toddlers or infants and are now approaching or are in the depths of teen years and young adults. So I think this is kind of a, a overarching thing. And a lot of people ask questions that echoed this. How do we find that line between helicopter parenting, maybe being overprotective and letting our kids learn from their mistakes? You know, um, Kelly, my co-author, who is a family child and therapist, did, um, who specializes in adoption, she did a blog post, I think it was last year, talking about the importance of our kids learning how to struggle. Um, like a butterfly, when it, when it comes out of the cocoon, if it doesn't get out of the cocoon itself, it cannot fly. And um, the same is true for our kids. And it is really hard as a parent to watch them struggle um, and know at what point do you let them struggle and what point do you not? It is incredibly difficult. And I think there are different, there's a different answer to that based upon the child. There's a different answer to that based upon the situation and what it is that they're struggling with. Um, and not knowing that you don't have to land firmly on one side or another, um, but just helping them, helping them to learn some different skills. Um, in preparing for their independence. And as far as older kids are concerned, as in you bring your kid home or older, um, one of the things that has just become a big thing for me, really a, a great realization for me, is that can't, won't. Um, there's so much that falls into can't for our kids, and then there's so much that falls into won't. But I think most everything falls into some level of can't and some level of won't. And um, helping your kid to have to, or help, helping your kid learn how to um, discover natural consequences within your household and within a realm that you can still rescue them, if you will, or help them have a redo, help them to try again, is really going to be more beneficial than if we just always rescue them. I don't know if that really answers the question, but that's kind of how I feel about um, the natural consequences in helicopter parenting. It is really difficult for me to not want to go in and rescue. Um, but now having seen my daughter launch on her own to be able to see her uh, grow uh, from the things that she's experienced has been very helpful for me. Yeah, what do you say to parents who, who think their kids can be independent and they it doesn't seem like they want to be? And like, how do we draw healthy boundaries around that? Or are there natural consequences for looking at that? Or is it really a can't? Again, I feel like it's probably a little bit of both. Um, I think really trying to get to the root. And even if you don't get to the root for the child to discover what the root reason is why they feel like they can't launch or they don't want to launch, um, for yourself, 
coming to finding out what is the root reason for that? Is it because they feel really anxious? Do they not feel prepared to do that? Are they really scared about what um, that might look like or how they might fail? Um, I think those are keys. Uh, for me, myself, finding the root has been, or really reflecting on what the root might be has been very helpful in um, understanding and accepting my child's choices. I think there's no right answer to this. I think if your child, if you feel like your child can launch and it's a, maybe a little more won't than can't, then um, I just encourage you to, to push them past whatever their comfort level is. I see a lot of parents posting about their kids, um, you know, staying home all day, sleeping all day, staying up all night, um, gaming, whatnot. And I, and I think, well, what can you do as a parent to create some boundaries so that they might choose to stay up all night, but that doesn't mean that they have access to gaming. It doesn't mean that they have access to Wi-Fi. It doesn't mean that they have access to internet or um, don't have access to TV or whatever to where you kind of create some boundaries. And I realize that that is not, not all kids are going to be willing to stay within the boundaries that you give them. Um, but there needs to be some sort of boundaries um, to help them get out of the rut that they're in. Um, and then really addressing, is it anxiety? Is it fear? What can we do to address those root issues to get you to realize that you can be independent? And then also I feel like, and, and maybe I wouldn't say it's a too late conversation, but um, having conversations with our kids about what the future looks like. I think that sometimes if your kid comes home older, they tend to live only in the immediate. And so they have really no concept about what future looks like and um, what future is beyond tomorrow. And so having conversations of, well, what do you think it's going to look like when you live in your own apartment? Or what would you like your apartment to look like? Or um, what, do you, what kind of foods are you going to want to eat when you're on your own? Or how are you going to cook those things? Let's work on some of these skills and things and helping them see that they can live independently and what live, living independently looks like. Now, I think that the challenge there is not making it whole um, an argument as in you're going to live independently and how are you going to cook and how are you going to eat and all of that, <laughs> making it more like a conversation. Like, let's talk about this. What do you think that looks like? And um, ask, maybe even asking more questions than telling them anything, letting them come to conclusions. I tend to um, what I call give breadcrumbs. I'll ask questions. And then if it doesn't feel like she's getting, she doesn't understand what I'm asking or she's not sure how to answer it, then I'll give a little breadcrumb. Well, what about this? Let's talk about this. Well, what about this? And so I kind of lead her to where um, she comes to a realization of, oh yeah, I can live by myself and this is what it looks like. And it doesn't, it isn't always a conversation we have all in one sitting. It might be a conversation we talk about one aspect of it and you and I realize okay well she's done talking about this now or uh, her wall is up or she's shut down or whatnot and then determining when I then pick it up at a later time when she's more receptive to talk about it. Yeah. I had a really interesting conversation with my husband recently about this whole like idea of lazy, you know, doesn't get off the sofa all day because I see a lot of the same posts. And I think we have again, had older kids, but we've also 
kind of fostered or mentored a couple other young adults who've kind of come in and are in and out of our house over the years. And they've been various degrees and levels of kind of functioning and being able to hold down jobs. And what we've noticed is that we do a lot better relationally if we assume the can't instead of the won't. Um, and really that they want, um, if there doesn't even seem to be a desire to get out or go, that that's an indicative of something else. Maybe it's depression of some sort, even a mm-hmm. clinical depression or, or something. And if they want to get out and they still aren't, that there is something holding them back that we just haven't uncovered. Like you said, trying to get to the root, because I really think in a healthy situation where you feel safe and confident, no one wants to live on their parents' sofa for the rest of their lives, right? It's kind of like potty training. When you, when you do have all the skills in place and you feel confident the human tendency is to want to, you know, move towards that next step. And so if you're not there, your child's not there mm-hmm. to do a little bit of digging. Um, also to understand that unfortunately we can't force anything, right? We can't force them to get all the way to the root or go to therapy or deal with their stuff. And so sometimes we have to figure out, you know, what our boundaries are. Are they safety things? Are they other things, you know, is it going to kill anyone to let your 30 year old sleep on your sofa for the rest of their lives? You know, like (laughs) you have to kind of, um, you know, define what that, um, success is going to be and, and how much is societal pressures and how much is, you know, an actual situation that needs to be dealt with. And then you're right. There is not a clean cut and dry, Mm -mm. um, answer, but, kind of each family. And, and I do often start with asking families kind of what their definition of success is. Having a really clear answer to that question can guide you through a lot of the other things. Um, I think I've probably shared this before on the podcast, but our definition for our older kids is that we would be a safe place for them to come back to through, whether it's through failure or for a stop or whatever, if they need to be here a little bit longer and that changes the way we look at, you know, whether or not they're sleeping on the sofa or they have a job or a lot of other things. And, um, and relationship has been really important. Uh, and so, you know, which boundaries are absolutely necessities and then which ones can we let go in the name of having future relationship? Yeah. And I think, you know, the bigger picture is also being able to look at, you know, is it is there a problem with my child being 30 and living on my couch? On the one hand, maybe not. On the other hand, maybe, because you're not always going to be around to support them. And at some point they have to be able to know how to support themselves, but creating, like you said, the boundaries and, and trying to come to some sort of root. Um, You know, a lot of times with the therapies and things you've got, um, EMDR or various other types of therapies, it requires them being willing to do the work. Um, there's lots of different brain research therapists out there, but they still have to be willing to do the work. And so knowing that sometimes they're not going to be willing or ready to do the work, but if you can um, come to a place where you can see where what the root might be, and if you can then I identify that for them, maybe, or maybe even just having a conversation about why are you afraid, or it seems like maybe you're afraid about living on your own, or you're kind of afraid about, or or are you afraid about having a job, you know, asking questions, because sometimes I think our kids don't have the words to put to their feelings. 
And it might be something that you've worked with them on a little bit or that they've worked a little bit on in therapy if they've been in therapy. But sometimes as they get older, I think the feelings um, change a bit and it is challenging for them to have the words to put, why, why do I want to stay on the couch rather than get out and get a job? What's preventing me from doing this? What am I, what am I feeling? They might not even be aware of what they're feeling. Yeah. I love what you're talking about in terms of communication, you know, even imagining, envisioning what the future is going to look like to a really practical level because our kids struggle with things like executive functioning, which is means that their abstract thinking, their ability to really put themselves in their future, you know, yeah. two years from now is really hard. Kind of along with that, what has your experience been with how your daughter kind of experiences the idea of independence? I know that we didn't realize this for a long time, but even the thought of the idea of moving towards independence, even though for healthy, healthily attached child would be the next natural thing. This was really a triggering thing for her because she just didn't know, like, what did that mean in terms of our relationship? And um, this one question, you know, said, do you have thoughts or ideas about when a teen who seemed very attached, maybe in their younger years, all of a sudden, as we come into the older teen years, starts to push you away? What are your thoughts about that? The first thing that comes to mind, I experienced this a little bit and still do to some extent a little bit with my relationship with my daughter. But one of the families that we interviewed, her daughter uh, was from Ethiopia, I think. Um, And she talked a lot about their relationship being push and pull, that she would push towards her mom and want to have a close relationship, spend a lot of time together, have lots of conversations, but then she would push her away for a while. So there's just this constant push pull and not really knowing as a mom, okay, now you're pulling away from me. What, what am I supposed to, how am I supposed to interpret this? And what am I supposed to do? What's my role in this pulling away business? Um, I do remember, even though our training, when we adopted our, our daughter, our oldest daughter was not anywhere near adequate. I do remember one conversation about to them talking about when you adopt an older kid that's a teenager, it's even more difficult because you are trying to establish the foundation of attachment. At the same time, they're moving into an age where they begin to separate from their parents, naturally begin to separate from their parents and begin to be independent. And so how do you walk this dance of trying to create a connection with them and create a foundation with them of a relationship at the same time that they're preparing to move out on their own? And then if you add into that the additional complication of they have spent their life up until the time that they moved, moved into your family, which for us was 13 years, feeling that they could only depend upon themselves. There is no one else that they could depend on. And now they have to transition to, oh yeah, you're my parent. I don't even know what a parent is, but I'm now supposed to depend on you when I've never been able to depend on anybody ever to take good care of me up to this point. How does that work? And so that makes it far more difficult as well. So on the one hand, I say the push-pull I think is, kind of common. And then the other part is the teenage thing that is kind of what they they're beginning to transition into independence. And so there's that push pull with that transition as well into adulthood. 
Yeah, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about even the mixed signals we must have sent to our kids because they came home at 11, 13, and 14, similar ages to your daughter. And on one hand, we were trying to form attachments. So we were trying to get them to communicate, talk about their feelings, ask permission to do things. They were learning how to live in a family. They did not like it. On the other hand, we were also trying to teach them all these life skills that were going to prepare them to be, quote unquote, independent. Man, I think we were sending a lot of mixed signals. Because we only had, you know, in our son's case, four years to both teach him how to depend on us and then also how to be independent in an entirely different culture. Right, 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 right. Absolutely. I always picture, you know, that story in the Bible where it talks about we have to have, is our house built on a rock, the rock of Jesus or on sand? And I feel that our relationship with our kids when we get them older is very similar to that. But we don't have time to build this house of relationship. We don't, we don't have time to build the house of relationship in the few years we have with them, as well as make sure that foundation is nice and firm because they haven't been with us long enough to create the foundation and build the house. So you can't, you're trying to do two things at once. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've been trying to use the word more interdependence because if we're really honest with ourselves, we go through life as adults with a lot of relationship and we're not really independent, right? Like we call our in-laws or our parents to babysit or we, you know, borrow an egg from a neighbor or we ask someone for help doing this or we call up our uh, small group leader who also is a lawyer and ask questions about how to fill out, you know, X form or that form. Like we are actually never fully self-sufficient and independent. And that was something our kids taught us as they grew and kind of went out on their own much quicker than I was, you know, kind of ready for them was that I was, I kept saying, harping on them, you know, you're not going to be able to survive in life if you can't spell this or do this or (laughs) ask this question. But as it turns out, if you are willing to ask you can actually get a ton of support as a young adult and people are willing to help you. And our kids have gotten by and become quote unquote independent, really interdependent with a lot less skill than I thought that they needed before they headed out. And I wish I had spent more time building that foundation that you were talking about rather than kind of all of these nitpicky skills because honestly, they're figuring it out. And there's people along the way that are helping them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like cooking, for example, in fact, when my daughter was here last weekend, I think we were cooking together and she was remembering something um, and talking about a story. I don't, I kind of remember that situation of her trying to learn how to cook and it being an issue reading a recipe or something. I don't remember exactly. And so we talked about that and, you know, she says, I wish I would have learned how to cook more. I wish I would have used those experiences because they would have helped me now. But she's lived off of ramen noodles and canned soup and, you know, yeah. so she's well, still ha- I know, right? She's not going to, she hasn't died yet. Um, <laughs> when you have the foundation though, and because you guys have a close relationship and a healthy one now, she could still come back and learn Absolutely. a recipe or ask you, you know, yeah. I get calls from my older kids now saying, that thing that you made, can you send me the recipe? Or I'm trying to make this, how do you do that? So the relationship is hard to salvage way down the road 
if we've sacrificed it on all the nitpicky things. Right. But you can build a strong relationship and then they can still come back to you for those yeah. skills that all of a sudden they realize they probably needed, right. you know, the, how right. to capitalize your name on a job application, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> how to fill out a resume. I mean, you know, an application, lots of different things, but I do think it's, it's this um, back and forth dance, you know, trying to figure out how much do you help them learn how to cook or help them learn how to plan a meal or whatnot and how to grocery shop at the same time, not making it the thing. So I wish I could say that there is a, a, a specific way to go about it, but unfortunately there's not. And just knowing when your kid is in a receptive mood that they're willing and able to go shopping with you to learn how to shop or to that they're willing and able at that moment to do some of the cooking with you. Maybe they're not going to do the whole thing with you, but if they'll start by doing the prep work or they'll, they'll follow up with not the prep work, but they're willing to do the cooking part, you know, kind of making it more, more flexible, if you will. Kind of moving into some of these more practical skills Um, Do you have any kind of sage advice on how to teach our kids about earning, working, saving, spending, all the financial literacy things that are helpful? What worked for you guys in terms of helping your daughter kind of get her mind around how to manage her money? Or is it a a complete disaster? (laughs) I wouldn't say it's a complete disaster, but it's still a work in progress. She's still figuring it out. One of the families that we talked to, I feel like they did two families actually, but one specifically did an exceptional job um, teaching their kids. I don't, maybe their kids were from Ethiopia as well. I don't remember. I think I remember there being two, uh, a boy and a girl. And he, the dad um, gave them a set budget. And out of that budget, they were responsible for paying, uh, you know, paying for their razors or their shaving cream or their shampoo or their body wash or whatever, whatever household things that, parents determined that you are responsible for. And it provided an opportunity to teach them about, you know, how you can make this money stretched, where you shop makes a difference, what you buy makes a difference, um, all of these things. And then he also, um, he would pay for the kids as gas, but they had to bring him a receipt in order to help them understand that, you know, then you know where you are. And in order to get reimbursed for things that a job for example, then you have a receipt um, and that's what you use to get reimbursed. And I thought that was very helpful. And, and he talked about how it was a challenge. One of his kids picked it up faster than the other, but that it provided a lot of great opportunities about how you spend your money and, you know, what their options are, what their options are and how even he has a limited budget and what he um you know, how he chooses to spend the money matters. Either it's not going to go far enough or it will go far enough and that sort of thing. Um, So I thought that was a great way to help your kids understand money. And we did a little bit of that. Um, Determining how much money, that's one thing that you need to determine just what you feel like your kid could handle. Um, We didn't do a large amount. Oh, the other thing he had them do is they had, they were required to do haircuts but they had to decide if they wanted to go to a cheaper place or a more expensive place. Like they got to choose that. He just kind of had them be responsible for different household things. Um, And then another family did something. I remember their, their child was thinking about dropping out of high school. And so instead of panicking, 
mom decided, okay, let's talk about what does life look like if you drop out of high school? What does it look like? How do you find a job? How much money can you make? What kind of jobs are, are options? What options do you have? And so they began just looking, uh, it was through the paper or do, I don't remember where exactly they looked for jobs, what jobs in their community that you can qualify for if you don't have a high school diploma or a GED or anything like that. And how much money do they make? And so um, they started off with that and then, you know, found a job that made $10 an hour, $12 or whatever it was, and then calculated what would that look like if you work 40 hours a week? What does your income look like? And then went, there, went from there and said, okay, well, this is what you have to work with. Okay, let's look at how much are apartments, how much does an apartment cost every month and how much is your electricity cost every month and how much is a cell phone plan and all, how much is car insurance? And it became clear for the child that they had to finish high school because they wouldn't be able to survive independently. And so it wasn't mom saying you have to do this or making this an argument or getting up in the kid's face or dad or, or it even being a big deal. They just said, okay, well, let's look at what life would look like if this is the choice that you make. Um, and so the kid came to the conclusion themselves, didn't require mom and dad to tell them anything that they needed to finish high school and possibly even continue school after high school. Um, and so that also was a great way to help their kids see the big picture without the parents telling them everything. Yeah, I like that. I've also heard of families who kind of work on a cash budget for the benefit of having their child see money come in and money go out. Um, I know that's hard for a lot of families to switch to something like that, but even just the idea of, using cash more often with our kids because it's concrete. The idea yeah. of this plastic swiping, you know, works for us if we have fully formed prefrontal cortexes and an idea of how money works. But a lot of our kids are going to need something a little bit more concrete and cash yeah. is a really good way, you know, giving them the actual money they need for some of those incidentals like shampoo and shaving cream and, yeah, you know, yeah. having them, you know, actually see it come and go, I think can be really helpful. Yes, Absolutely switching gears kind of for a hard right here. How do we talk to older kids and how did you explore this in the book? Um, how do we talk to our kids about sexuality and their bodies um, when we aren't sure of their histories and there may be learning disabilities or brain differences because of trauma? Um, it's, it's tricky with neurotypical kids. It's mm -hmm. extra fun with our older kids who come to us by adoption. Mm -hmm. uh, we did actually dedicate an entire chapter to this in our book. Um, and there are a list of different resources. I, I think there's some books that you can read that are, that are specifically written for kids and then books that are written for parents to talk to their kids about sex. I think that having the conversation obviously is important. Um, I remember several of the parents we talked to, their kids came older, obviously, and um, they had experienced, probably experienced sexual abuse, but I, I don't know, in at least one of the cases, I don't know that it was actually documented, um, but what they found was just having a conversation about it, asking questions like, what do you know about this, or tell me about that. They discovered, even though their kid would say that he was very knowledgeable about sex. They determined in their conversation asking those questions that they were very misinformed about a lot of things and they didn't actually know much truth. 
you know, I think being a good listener is key and um, asking questions is key. Now, I can tell you that there were a couple of families who shared what they had done and wish they had done differently. One family had two older girls, I think they were from Russia, um, who came home within a year or so of each other. And they had a book, well, I don't remember what the book was, um, that they used to, and gave to their older daughter to read. And then they followed up by asking questions to make sure that her daughter had read it. Well, dad had commented he wished he had done different, a different book with the second daughter because the second daughter didn't want to read the book. And so she just asked her sister, what questions are they going to ask me? <laughs> and then they, she knew the answers to the questions without ever and ever having read it, read the book. So um, that was one that was wish they had done it differently. And then another one, um, their daughter was from China and they were able to find a, a book about sex from a Christian perspective, which was their um, standard uh, in Mandarin. And thinking that that would be more helpful. Child hadn't been home for very long. And so gave them the book. And years later discovered that their Mandarin was so elementary, they didn't even really understand the book. And so it would have been better if, if mom said it would have been better if they would have read a book in English together and then had conversations about different things as they went to make sure there was full understanding. So I think finding, there are many resources out there. Um, there is one set of books that are uh, Christian-based books uh, called God's Design for Sex. And it, it starts very young, talking about age-appropriate ways to introduce boys and girls, what the differences are, and that sort of thing. And then I want to say it's a series of four books, or maybe five books, that is all based on age. And you read the different books, gives a different, different amounts of information based upon the age of the kid. So that's a great resource. There's another book that you could read with your child and have conversations about and then there's another book, and I know people have a strong, a lot of people have a strong personality, a strong feelings about uh, Focus on the Family, but Focus on the Family has a resource that's put out by the Physicians Resource Council, and it's specifically about um, talking to your kids about sex. And what I like about that book is that it also is broken down by age. So the chapters on age and what things you should make sure your kids know about or that you should have conversations about. And then it has a series of questions. My kid asks this question, how do I respond to that? And again, it's from a biblical perspective, if that is your um, value on how you can answer their questions and how you respond to them. So those are two good resources that I have found, but there are, there are many others as well. Yeah. I know in our family, it has worked. Well, our kids don't always like it, but it has worked to tr do our best to treat this just like any other topic, like money, like food, that it's not a taboo thing. It's not one that we, you know, get super embarrassed or, you know, have to have special parameters around that we kind of just let the conversation flow where it goes. Um, and we will bring it up, you know, just like we bring up the weather, uh, which again, our kids don't always super appreciate, but I think it's important that, you know, we kind of lead the way and model how to have these conversations. Um, you know, we try to keep it as medical and non-emotional as mm -hmm. possible. And that has worked really well for our kids in terms of keeping the lines of communication open and, and being a source of information so that we're debunking 
myths that our kids came home with or just not letting them find out the answers, you know, either on Google or at school or, or something. Um, and then I think the other thing that's really helpful sometimes with older kids, especially if attachment's kind of tricky um, and this is not, you know, you can barely talk about the weather, let alone <laughs> sex is, you know, have this conversation with your therapist or have the therapist have the, you know, whatever we can third party, like, out, relegate out or to somebody else to help our kids navigate that where there's not like all the big emotions about the topic plus all the big emotions about whatever your relationship status is with your child. Um, it can always be a good thing to kind of farm that out to a third, a third party or your physician or something like that. As long as you know that whatever, whoever that third party is, uh, lines up with what your, whatever your values right. are. Yeah. Yeah. And also giving your child another person that they can talk to and ask questions of besides just you and your. Right. Because when was the last time you asked your mom about sex? Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. For some of the practical things, do you have any tips or ideas for how to draw boundaries or have a guideline when we look at planning or teaching for kids who are not sure are going to become fully independent and not in that sense where we talked about interdependence, but where they may have to live at home or with a caregiver full time or, or a good part of the time, you know, even after we're long gone. Um, how do we plan for that? Do you have good resources for what things we should be focusing on or not focusing on or what resources might be in the community to start putting things into place to, kind of provide support and resources for our kids? Um, I remember uh, when I was looking for research on our Preparing for Adulthood chapter, there are several uh, books out of that specifically target um, how do you prepare your kids for independence if they have autism. Several of those books provided really good, I felt like provided really good information. The trick about some of them, though, was that you have to have some sort of diagnosis. And um, several of the books talked about specific ways to access resources, um, government resources, state resources. But again, you have to have a diagnosis. For a lot of our kids that don't have a diagnosis, that makes it much more difficult. Um, but if they do have a diagnosis, I have found that um, if you research preparing your kid for adulthood that are autistic, there tend to be a lot of um, helpful things. As far as preparing for, financially preparing for them, I don't have anything specific. I mean, I think it just depends on your individual family and how yeah. you how you do that. And a good place to start just in terms of research is to look for a local law firm in your area who does estate planning and specifically special needs estate planning. Even if you don't have a diagnosis, they're going to be the ones who are knowledgeable about setting up things like trusts and, mm-hmm. and other things yes. financially for how you can... continue to provide for a child who might not be fully independent in adulthood. Switching topics to kids who are older in foster care. So we're talking about adopting older kids. Um, And we have talked about this in terms of, you know, just the transition, especially even from another country, because, you know, you adopted from China, we adopted from Ethiopia. Is there a way to have a conversation with an older child and ask if they would like to be adopted? And because I know in our case, our daughter was a resounding yes before she was adopted and then a resounding no afterwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, you know, if you could talk to your 
pre-adaptive self before this, like, what would you have done differently if you were able to have this conversation with an older child? I think that asking their kid, asking your kids, what do you think your future looks like now? And what makes that tricky is I would imagine this is true for Ethiopia. I know it's true for China. There is no future thinking. And, um, and I know in foster care, you know, kids are thinking about one thing. And that is when I turn 18, the state no longer has a say about what I do or where I go or where I live. There's like a, an inability to think past what does life look like after 18. And so having a conversation about what do you want your future to look like? And that's something that I noticed. I mean, you see it in, in kids that are adopted internationally. They, they don't have, people don't ask them, what do you want to do when you grow up? People in kids in foster care are often not even asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? And what does life look like for adulthood? Or what do you dream about? And um, they just, often don't have those conversations. People don't ask them. And so I think asking them, what do they want that to look like is important. We did have one family in our study that the mom, single mom wanted to adopt this particular girl. This particular girl did not want to be adopted. And so she chose to age out. She lived with her foster mom. I want to say for four years, five years, something like that. And even after she turned 18, she stayed there for a year, maybe two, even though she wasn't legally required to let her stay there. She saw her as you're my daughter and I want you here. But they were, they had a lot of conversations about what her place is in the family and um, what the benefits would be to adopting or what the benefits would be not to adopt. I think leaving the conversation open and just asking the questions. I think maybe just asking the questions are key. And then the hard part of asking the question is you don't know what the answer is going to be and preparing yourself that if it's not the answer you want to not take it personally, because it really isn't about you. If, if the child says, I didn't really want to be adopted or I don't now want to be adopted. I mean, my daughter has many times over the years said, I wish you weren't my mom. You know, I think that just comes with adoption, but I think not taking it personally, whatever their answer is, is key and not making them feel like they have to answer in a way that you want them to answer just really keeping it open. It's especially with kids in the U S foster care system. It's not a cut and dry conversation because there are certain benefits that you get if you do age out. And if you have a good relationship with your foster family and you feel connected and you don't need that piece of paper, there honestly are benefits to not being adopted. Right. You know, at or before 18. Um, and there's a whole bunch of identity issues. There's a whole lot of grief of letting go of a first family. Uh, and I think another conversation that I wish we would have known to have beforehand, and I'm not even sure that our language barrier would have allowed us to, but certainly it's something you could explore with the child in the U.S. foster care system is, is taking their answers and kind of digging a little deeper mm-hmm. um, so that you kind of tease out what some of the definitions of their words are. So our daughter said, I want a mom. It's like my dream come true. Well, come to find out 18 months after she's been in our family, her expectation and definition of mom was someone who gives you everything that you want, right. kind of like right. a genie in a bottle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And so a, 
her definition of mom was not someone who kept you accountable for how many veggies you ate at dinner or whether or not you exercised or did your schoolwork. And so here I was thinking that she wanted a mom and she thought she wanted a mom. And here I was with my definition of what motherhood was and then her definition of what motherhood was. And it got ugly really fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, we talked, we, I figured out, um, in one of the classes that I was teaching, it was like an aha moment, literally in the middle of class as I was doing this lecture on, um, information processing and how we in our brains have certain definitions or different expectations. And I, I visualize it as a box. We have a box in our brain for the case of my daughter. We have a box. She has a box in her brain that says parents and inside her box of parents was completely empty because she had never had parents. So she had no idea what parents' roles were. But then she had teachers or what she identified as teachers at the orphanage who did many of the things parents do, but she thought of it as this is what teachers do. So when she came here, I remember more than one time her saying, mom, I don't want you to teach me that. I want my teachers to teach me that. And I was having this conversation, but that's not something teachers teach, that's something parents teach it was just this great realization of what does she have in that box of parenting? You know, we, what goes in our box is what we know from experience, what our parents were like, or maybe what we read, if we've done a lot of research on attachment or adoption or whatever, um, and what we think parenting should look like, or what we think so-and-so's research such parenting should look like. We put that in the box. And so when we become parents and we look in our box and we say, okay, well, I want to do this or I want to do that. And as we experience things then we put more information in our box and then it changes, our definition changes and, and whatnot. And for her, the realization that she had no idea, like your daughter didn't have any idea what parents are supposed to do, what their roles were, what to expect from them, what the relationship looks like. She had absolutely no idea. Um, So yes, knowing what that definition looks like for them. And, you know, when kids age out of the system, there are some benefits, but for some kids, they need that sense of belonging that that piece of paper gives them. And, and you yourself being the parent, being flexible and open to allowing it to look however the kid wants or needs it to look. And the key being there, not taking it personally. Um, Cause I think that's really hard when we pour so much into a kid and we want what's best for them. And we feel like what's best for them is to have that same last name, that same piece of paper, whatever that is. And the kid doesn't feel like that's necessary or that's not what is a priority for them. And then we want to, I don't think we, we don't purposely do this. Then they, we make them feel bad because what they think is best is not what we think is best. And then it just becomes a point of contention. And sometimes I don't even think we identify it or realize it. it's a point of contention until much later when it becomes much bigger than it initially started as. But I think so much about parenting, at least in my experience, is removing myself from the equation and it not being a lot of things not being about me. Um, And specifically for my older daughter, I remember um, she was 16 ish, 15, something like that. We went to Disney World and we all as a family call that the vacation from hell. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why we thought this was a good idea, but it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. Um, But her throwing literally the most 
giant temper tantrum in the middle of Disney in the summer with thousands of people around us, you know, stomping our feet, yelling, speaking in Chinese, crying, wailing, wailing, not crying, wailing, um, (laughs) because something happened and didn't go the way she wanted or whatever it was. And I had just interviewed one of the families from our study and she had said, and so this was going through my head as my daughter is throwing this big giant bit, you know, your child's behavior is not always a reflection on you. And I think sometimes as parents, we want to make everything about our kids' behaviors about us and being a reflection of us. And as a society, I think often the message is communicated that the way, if your child is acting inappropriately, then look at the parents who've done something wrong. And, and that may be true, but I don't think that's always true, particularly for kids that are, have pre, have a very long life pre-you. Yeah. And even if they had a short life pre-you, I mean, early childhood trauma is just so significant. Um, yes. And what I hear you saying again and again besides it's not about us, which is a really good reminder that we all need to have probably every day, right? Is stay curious, ask more questions, Mm -hmm. then give answers to our older kids um, and be a really good listener. Because, you know, a lot about when you, as you grow up, a lot of things you learn through discovery. And sometimes you learn it um, by thinking about something deeper or by being challenged by someone asking what do you mean by this? Or what does that look like to you? And even as adults, I think that's true. In fact, just the last several weeks, I've been pondering a question that someone asked me, what does that look like to you? And I'm like, you know what? I don't really know for sure. Um, And so I think giving those, giving our kids the opportunity to learn and discover things on their own, it becomes theirs. Knowing that we, we can't, we can't control everything about our kids. We just cannot. Well, as we wrap up, you've referenced your book a couple times, and it was so much work that you and Kelly poured into this, and I've had a chance to read it. It's been a little while, but it is fantastic. Will you tell us just a little bit about what your thoughts were coming into creating this and kind of what it is as a resource? Yeah, so um, when my daughter had been home about maybe two years, a year and a half, something like that, um, I kind of the realization that adulthood isn't that far in the future for us. And um, I began researching, how do I, how do I prepare? I mean, obviously I've never parented a 14 year old before. I don't really know what, what I, I need to teach her so that she's ready for adulthood and realizing that there just wasn't any resources. And even in challenge in, in addressing challenging behaviors with our kid, with my kid, I didn't have, there, there was just, there's just no resources. And the few that I did find, you know, counted older children as age four. Well, your experiences of bringing home your kid at four and bringing home a kid at 13 are very, very different. And so um, that's kind of how it started in, um, in deciding to write this book. And, and Kelly being, uh, she actually was my youngest daughter's play therapist and she specializes in adoption and we had a great working relationship. And so I reached out to her and I said, what do you think about us writing this book together? And she knew that there were not very many resources. I mean, this was her area of expertise and she knew there wasn't very many resources. And so that's kind of how it started. Um, And then we found 40 different families who adopted uh, one or more children that was at least 10 at the time of placement. Um, And there's the, the kids came from seven different 
um, countries. So we had a wide range of experiences and we just wrote it as for, well, for two things. One, being helpful for those who have already chosen older child adoption as a resource, knowing that they're not alone and um, helping them come up with some ideas and some ways to, to parent their, their child or work through different experiences or how to address certain issues. Um, but then the other way is for those who are considering older child adoption. Because I think, I, you know, I myself went into older child adoption and say, oh, yeah, I'll adopt a child that's aging out. I had no idea what I was getting into. <laughs> and had I had a book like this, it would have been so helpful. For me, I might have still chosen older child. I mean, I probably would have still chosen older child adoption. But I would have been so much more prepared. And I would have... Um, been in a better place to know what to expect than I was. Um, and then, you know, older child adoption is not for the faint of heart. And so there are some who think, oh yeah, I want to adopt an older child. I'm going to be the savior. I'm going to rescue them. It's going to be wonderful. Um, for them to realize, you know what, maybe this isn't the best fit for us and for our family. And that's okay. But it's better to realize that uh, before than after your child comes home. And we do have an entire chapter that talks about disruption. And we had four different families that disrupted some in the midst of our study from when we started to the time we finished our book. Um, and some that had disrupted before um, just to give that perspective. Because I feel like it's, it happens more often than we want to admit. And um, it is a taboo topic to talk about. And so it's important for families to go into it knowing that this does happen. Also know that this, if this is something that they don't want to happen. So let's make sure that we want, let's make sure that this is the best fit for us and for our family. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, the book is a fantastic resource. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Chris, thank you so much. I know you're a busy lady. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing uh, the wisdom from both the families who contributed to the book and from your own experience. Yes, absolutely. My pleasure. I really enjoyed that interview and there were so many things that I was able to take away from it and reflect on and think about how I'm going to try to implement them with my older kids. And I think one of the things that was most interesting to me was where she talked about trying to bring this idea of a nebulous future into a more concrete thing that our teens and young adults can think about and prepare for, you know, help them make it more real. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good lesson for those of us who are parenting teens, whether they're from hard places or even neurotypical, but it's so important for our kids who struggle with executive functioning and struggle with the abstract. I mean, the future is so unknown anyway, but really having some non-emotional, helpful conversations, you know, even in some cases, almost like role-playing, you know, where the one family gave their kids a budget and they were kind of responsible for their own finances, even though they lived at home, things like that, I think are so helpful for our kids. Um, and even just this visualization piece of, you know, having a picture of where you're headed, I think is really powerful. I think she mentioned either, either Chris or you mentioned, um, giving kids the visual of actual cash money. And I have a friend who decided to implement this with her teen daughter. She has 14 daughters 
And so she got her whole paycheck in cash and brought it home and laid it all out on the table. And then she had the girls help her take what was needed for each bill, you know, like, okay, now let's take this much money and set it aside for cell phones and this much for utilities, you know, to try to help them realize the value of money and the limitations of money. So um, I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah. And that's how I grew up. I, re- I have very distinct memories of my parents operating in cash out of different envelopes. It was yep. probably before D- Dave Ramsey. I'm not sure how they got the idea, but um, that's how I grew up. And it's certainly not how my kids are growing up. And some of them probably need that concrete exercise. Yeah. That swiping plastic is totally different. And, you know, I was just with my mom last weekend and she was getting ready to pay for something and she pulled an envelope out of her purse with cash in it. I was like, yep, that's, and you know, my parents were great budgeters. They were good at it. Yeah. Yeah. Mine too. If you would like to connect with Chris and the resources and her book, all of those things will have links at the show notes. You can connect with Chris at the website adoptionsurvival.com. And there's also a Facebook page. Again, the book is called Wisdom from Adoptive Families, Joys and Challenges in Older Child Adoption. It's kind of like a handbook, not something you have to read cover to cover, but you can definitely use the table of contents and kind of glean what you need for the stage and challenge that you're facing. And then Chris also has generously provided you guys with a free download. It's resources for preparing your child for adulthood. And it's kind of like a bibliography of different websites and things, some of the things that we talked about during the interview. So if you would like to connect with Chris, order the book or download the free resource list, you can do that at the show notes, which you can go to at theadoptionconnection.com slash 73. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.